The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. We're having so much fun off the air. We almost forgot to get on the air, <laughs> but we don't want to do that because we have a like a, a lot of fun, exciting, entertaining, and educational uh, programming in this hour. Our guest is Scott Paul. You know him. He's the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Their partnership, established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union, and for over 16 years now, almost two decades. Uh, Scott and the AAM, they have worked to make American manufacturing a top of mind issue for voters. And you know, they've been successful in that because we as voters do know about manufacturing, right? And we do consider jobs and infrastructure, manufacturing and all those things uh, when we vote and where those candidates stand on those issues and what they've done about it, right? They also uh, have made it a top of mind uh, issue for our national leaders. We see that in legislation and they've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, Scott Paul. Check out AmericanManufacturing.org. There is a plethora of information there, including on the website, places that uh, make goods in America so you can buy American products made in America. Help out your fellow uh, Jane and Joe Q public, uh, the American worker. And, you know, rather than sending your money to China where stuff's going to fall apart after one or two wearings, on Twitter, follow AAM at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, more than a pleasure to have you back. Good to have you with us uh, on this Friday to round out the week. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Leslie, of course. Happy Friday to you. And I just want to note, it's obviously pumpkin spice latte season, but pretty soon it's going to be holiday shopping season. And that means that we'll have our American made gift guide out uh, to talk about in probably two months, I guess. A little less I'm, than two months. I'm excited about that. I got to be honest, it's very helpful to me. And there are people in my family that appreciate that, that I purchased something they wouldn't purchase for themselves necessarily from an American-made company. Because I, I think that's one area where both Democrats and Republicans could agree. We want more stuff made here, right? You know, we make it better. Um, we get it quicker. Uh, and speaking of, let's talk supply chains. Because <laughs> uh, during the pandemic, um, certainly there was a huge cog in the wheel, whether it was stuff stuck in containers at ports, uh, problem getting things to ports because they were coming from China. Uh, the list goes uh, on and on. Elizabeth Brotherton Bunch, uh, from AAM, wrote a great piece uh, entitled Three Things to Know About Rebuilding Supply Chains. Um, and first up, talk about why they need to be rebuilt. Is it just from the pandemic, or was this sort of like a supply chain that was in desperate and dire need of repair prior? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think the pandemic brought a lot of it into focus. But I also think that there had been pre-existing challenges for a long time with supply chains. And the thing is, is like when supply chains work perfectly, we take it for granted. We don't notice anything. 
But when there's a disruption or a breakdown or a dependency, we we do, and, and I'll explain the dependency part of this. I mean, there have been times where we've had challenges getting all the medicine we need here in this country because virtually all of that supply chain for some active pharmaceutical ingredients and some vitamins like vitamin C or um, antibiotics is based in China. And, and, and so we've seen some shortages pop up from time to time there. We've also seen quality issues uh, with everything from pet food to, uh, to blood thinners to what have you. And so quality has been an issue. And then when we've seen these one-off events and just think back to the very tragic Fukushima disaster in Japan, which was 11, 12 years ago, I guess. And um, the impact of that was also to disrupt supply chains around the world because of all of this kind of hyper-globalization that we've seen. And clearly during the pandemic, we all felt it, whether it was yeah. toilet paper or masks or anything or buying a car for a period of time. And so, so we know that we have to do something about it, uh, but it, it's tricky because a lot of these global businesses have their business model very embedded in this belief that it makes a lot of sense to have parts from all over the world come together uh, to make a product because it ha helps their bottom line, even though there's a lot of potential pain points and risks along the way. One of the things um, I have to say is I've known you for many years and I've seen you um, become more and more prominent and as, as the face of and a spokesperson uh, for the American workers, specifically within uh, manufacturing as president of AAM. And this week uh, you testified um, before the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Innovation, Data and Commerce, that was on Wednesday, uh, examining ways to strengthen um, our supply chains, which, as you rightly pointed out, are fledgling and have been for quite some time, even if you just look at since the pandemic when people felt it the most. I want to do a sidebar here for a second, because I actually have had people ask me some questions regarding testifying uh, before any kind of congressional committee. Um, and I don't know. I, I mean, I think people just know because I'm on TV, I'm on radio, I write columns, you know, I'm I, I'm in, even though I'm not inside the beltway, I'm yeah. in you know, I'm in that click, you know, even peripherally. So, you know, the political media click. So, you know, one, um, it, it, do you, do you get nervous? Two, do you know what they're going to ask you in advance? And I ask because if you, I know how it is on TV, whether I'm on for, you know, five minutes or yeah. an hour and I know the topic, but I don't know what they're going to ask within the topic or whether they're going to go off. And, you know, I sometimes see people come in with this, the amount of paperwork that I'm submitting for my damn IRS audit, um, you know, th this much paperwork. And I'm thinking, <laughs> do, how do you pre prepare for that? It's like, it's like a thesis. So do you mind yeah. just a sidebar quickly yeah. on that? It's interesting. I, I'd be happy to, but I, I want to throw it back at you for a second, because I, I cannot imagine what it's like to do what you do, which is to be on live TV and have a panel of folks, and some of them disagree with you. And to have to make your point. Usually all, yeah. <laughs> and, well, all, yeah. And have to pivot so fast and have to talk about it, such a wide variety of topics and to be informed about it. That is not an easy thing to do. I mean, testimony in a way is a little easier and then also the same as that. The way in which it's easier is that you, you know, generally speaking, you get to give your set presentation. It's like four or five minutes. 
And so you can rehearse that and you, you know, you want to make your points and you know, you, you know, you know how much time you're going to take. And so that's kind of the easy part, although that takes a lot of preparation, a lot of research to make a, a cogent argument and to get across the policy points you want. The sometimes you do know the questions that are going to come your way because uh, the members of Congress are looking to make a specific point or to get a specific answer. And I will say, I'm always true to our beliefs. I never deviate from that. Sometimes you get questions that are, that are very uh, ad hoc or spur of the moment. And it, it can get interesting, obviously. And you have to be able to, you know, in your own mind, as you do on the air, kind of like, what are the two or three things that I want to say in like the minute that I have? And, and so it's like that. I, I, you know, I've done this. I mean, you've been on TV a lot. I've testified a lot. I mean, I think I've testified you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 times over my career. And so it kind of seems like second nature. But I do think for a lot of people, and I see this, who are testifying for the first time, yeah, it's like you have sometimes cameras, you have lights, you have all these members of Congress, there's all this attention on you. And, and I suppose- And you also know that there are going to be people, regardless of, you know, maybe from the Republican side on this issue or, you know, whatever side, yeah. uh, that are, are there, they're there for their camera opportunity right. at that moment. And, you yeah. know, so they're, they're going to come down hard on you, even though sometimes what they're saying or asking doesn't make any sense. Or, I, I mean, I, I saw it happen with Pete Buttigieg the other day where yeah, somebody yeah, was like right. talking about changing seasons and he was like, no, that's not climate change. That's changing yeah. seasons. They're very different. We could talk about that later, you know. Um, yeah. But um, so you're ready for that, right? It's almost like a cross-examination, yeah. if you will, with those politicians. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you, you do get that. But I will say every time I do it, I feel deeply honored because they're obviously respecting the organization, our stakeholders and want to make a point. And so I treat the process with the dignity and the respect that it deserves. And generally, it's very serious. Sometimes it can turn into a circus with the issues I work on. It usually doesn't uh, head that way. So, But it is a chance to, to make a point. And the most important thing for me, Leslie, is to be able to make progress out of this. Just to have a hearing, what does that do? But You know, let's no, get but, you know what? Let's you could say done. one thing, though, that makes somebody go, hmm, or makes a voter call and make somebody change their mind yeah. uh, and change their vote. Um, and so I, I thank you for what you're doing for the American worker. We're going to take a break, Scott. When we come back, we'll get back on track because I do want to talk about the supply chain. I want to talk about that hearing. I want you to present to us what you presented to them in a sense. We'll be back with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Right after this, AmericanManufacturing.org is their website on Twitter. Follow them at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott, Scott Paul, AAM. We're back. We are me, Leslie Marshall, and Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Uh, Scott and I are talking about the supply chain. Please uh, check out if you want to read some of these articles I'm referring uh, to AmericanManufacturing.org on Twitter. Follow them at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, thanks for holding. Welcome back. And thank you for giving us a peek behind the curtain at Oz when it comes to testifying, as you did Wednesday before the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Innovation, Data and uh, Commerce. Um, you in your testimony said um, before uh, this House committee that there are three things, main things uh, to keep in mind. And there are three things about rebuilding uh, supply chains. And first, you talked about there's certainty that there will be another disruption. And obviously, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where. Um, but can you speak to that? 
Barack Obama had said that before COVID, and many people have said that uh, yeah. since COVID happened, uh, Dr. Fauci as well, uh, that this won't be the last pandemic most likely right. in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And, and so some things we obviously can't predict, like the timing of, of anything that, like that. But I, I think the thing that we can almost guarantee is that extreme weather disrupts supply chains all the time. And that means like the Mississippi River sometimes being too low for barge traffic to get through or a storm disrupting a port or a drought disrupting an agricultural <coughs> supply um, or an ice storm in Texas disrupting factory production there that, that has an impact. And so th that is almost guaranteed to continue, and, and we have to account for that in some ways. Th there are the, you know, the, the, the pandemic-type things that we know, up, know of as well that, that will happen at some point in time. And then we also know that there will be challenges at bottlenecks. I mean, you may remember that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal, right, and what that did for supplies and prices for a while. And so... There's always this kind of risk with so many tens of thousands of container ships running all over the place. And so one of the so, so the, and, and, and Scott, of, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. to your point, just flashes in my mind so many things like Maui never expected to have fires that would wipe yeah. out uh, over a tenth of their population and their entire downtown. Um, and not to mention, you know, agriculture um, that so many of them rely on for them and for uh, tourists that are there oil spills, yeah. uh, which certainly, right, you know, affect, I mean, so there are, we have in contracts called acts of God, right, Mother Nature, yeah. um, that take place. Um, and also whether people believe in climate change or not, I think we can all um, admit, we have to factually, um, that there have been some crazy things that have happened with climate, um, areas having hurricanes like California that don't typically, places having flooding that don't typically, uh, like Palm Springs. Um, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and I would, you know, I think it's just common sense that we're going to see more of it. Yeah. And all of that can be quite disruptive. And so it makes sense to have some like best practices and to localize as much as possible just to mitigate some of that risk. And there are obviously other risks as well. But right. I think that instead of that broad kind of hyper-globalization, there's this idea now that being close to your home market probably makes the most sense. It may cost you a little more with labor costs up front, but ultimately you might save some money because you're going to be able to continue to produce and be close to your consumers and easier to make changes on the fly. Most definitely. The second thing that you spoke of when you testify is that many of our supply chains are still, and you spoke to this uh, at the beginning when we talked, incredibly frail. Um, and then you, you talked about them not being yet de-risked, decoupled, localized, or sufficiently resilient. I'm not sure what people know specifically what de-risking means or, or localizing a supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we talked about, obviously, the, the weather events and thinking about that. There's also another factor that businesses have to think about, and that is like political risk. And if you think about if China and Taiwan were to get into a conflict and it would disrupt shipping lanes in the Taiwan Strait, the amount of chaos that would cause in the consumer electronics supply chain would be beyond belief. 
And and so, so we're hurting ourselves when we're purchasing items that continually are made overseas in China and Russia as two examples. Our dependency on on that can hurt us. So when you talk about localization, you mean, again, make it here, produce it here and buy it here. Yeah. Yeah. And there may be times when the Chinese government sees that it's in its own interest to withhold critical materials that are needed to make something else because they've captured so much of the market in things like lithium or other things that goes that go into all sorts of smart electronics and batteries. And so uh, they may decide that if they don't like the actions of a particular government, that they're going to hold that hostage, that, that product hostage. And that would also be massively disrupted. And so the way to get around that is to think about, are there other places that I could find this from? Well, you constantly talk about the deficit, right? I mean, that, you know, what we buy, import, export, right? Yeah. And we, the United States, I I didn't know this. I I just found this out today, you know, in preparation for the show, that we, the United States, generally account for 20% of the world's consumption. Um, But of course, we're short of that when it comes to our global market share for making things, right, that, you know, we're consuming. And then you broke it down in your testimony. We manufacture only about 10% of the world's electric vehicles, 7% of the lithium ion ion batteries that you talked about, 12% of semiconductors, and 37% was what we manufactured less than a generation ago. Uh, That's, you know, awful. 4% of printed circuit boards. Um, the, the the list goes on. And you also talked about only one domestic producer of grain oriented electrical steel needed to you know build out that energy grid that you spoke of. Um, the list goes on and on. Um, where do we even begin to start to change that? Yeah. Yeah. So it, first of all, I think it makes sense to have awareness of what the problem is. And we're on the path to understanding that. I mean, the administration did something called a supply chain review. It looked at a number of key sectors, not every key sector, but a number of key sectors of our economy. And it's, I will say it's not scintillating reading. It's 1300 pages. It's across a bunch of different cabinets, but it's really the first comprehensive view in a number of ways of what we, what we have the capabilities to do, where our dependencies are. And so, and we have some filling in to do there. And so the next step is to act on that and to say, well, what are the industries we want to bring back here? And what do we think that in, if we can't bring it back here, should shift from China to one of our friends? Um, and then, you know, are there other things that we can think about doing, like recycling some of these materials or that, that would mitigate that, that dependency? And so I think that's the direction we need to have policymakers in uh, after this roadmap is complete. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go through the third item. You presented a three uh, before the committee. Uh, we're going to talk about that and it involves the federal government. I'm Leslie Marshall. Scott Paul's our guest president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM. I should say X. And follow AAM at X or Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. We'll be back with him, with you, right after this. Don't go away. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Scott Paul. He's president of American Manufacturing. And this past Wednesday, he testified before the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Innovation, Data, and Commerce um, about three things to know about rebuilding supply chains. 
He talked about um, preparing for another disruption. He talked about how uh, our supply chains are incredibly frail and still uh, de-risked, decoupled, localized, or sufficiently resilient. They, they need to be. Um, and let's talk, Scott. Thank you for holding a uh, welcome back third. Um, you talk about although the Biden administration uh, did have supply chain review efforts, but the federal government still does not currently have the complete set of tools and authorities to identify, prevent, and mitigate supply chain vulnerabilities before they spiral out of control, what would need to happen for the federal government to have that set of tools, to have the authority to be able to identify, prevent, and mitigate those supply chain vulnerabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, we do have, again, some of the pieces of the puzzle we do understand, but we need to find more of those pieces and put them into place to understand have the complete map of supply chains. And this is a, I mean, you know, in those like sci-fi movies where you see all those holograms with all the lines connecting things together, whether it's galaxies or planets. I mean, the supply chains look a little bit like that. And so it takes some level of sophistication to do that. And a trusted partner, which would be like the commerce department within the government, to bring the private sector together to do that, because the, the private sector can be very proprietary and, and also very private about their supply chains to try to protect their their own source of supply. Um, and, and so you need a trusted partner in the federal government to do that. And then beyond that, uh, you need to establish what should be called like best practices or voluntary standards for companies and their supply chains, like. Does it make sense to have a sole supplier of something in China, um, you know, in, in this day and age? Or are you doing everything you can to make your, your supply chain uh, resilient and free of that extreme weather risk as possible? Uh, and, and is it, you know, sustainable from an environmental and conservation perspective as well? Is it free of forced labor? It's another concern. And so, you know, you need to catalog kind of like what those best practices are. Uh, and then in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, and I think this is really important, the other governments have really bent over backwards to help their manufacturers with this. You know, Germany has a development bank for small and mid-sized manufacturers that it capitalizes to the tune of more than $100 billion. You know, Japan has something for its, uh, you know, for its supply chain. And we, we don't have much like that uh, at all, really. And so considering whether it makes sense to have loans, grants, or other types of financial assistance makes this available. And I'll just put this in perspective for you, Leslie. Like if you're a small and mid-sized manufacturer in the United States, it's sometimes hard to get capital to make improvements to your factory or your process or to even find new suppliers because you're operating at tight margins and banks would rather lend to things that have a more immediate return. You know, things like app development. It doesn't take, honestly, a lot of work. It doesn't take any hardware at all. It just takes a couple of people banging out some ideas on a computer and some software and you have the new app, and then it can make a ton of money right away. That's not what manufacturing is. And so it needs a different type of lending facility to make it work in the United States. China obviously has a lot of state control. We don't need that. We don't want that. But we can certainly look at what some of our competitors are doing quite successfully 
to encourage manufacturing to stay in their countries and, and, and get into that game. And so I think that's going to be an important aspect of our response to this as well. Um, you wrote, um, and, and, and you write, to indict Bidenomics, and you're referring to Catherine Rampell, uh, an op-ed that she entitled, Bidenomics is Manufacturing Problems for Itself on September 11th. And it, you said, to indict Bidenomics, Bidenomics as a failure and declare U.S. manufacturing stagnant, because that's what she said, an index that's more reflective of consumer spending patterns of the Federal Reserve's interest rate policies than any policy of President Biden's, it's more than a little misleading. And you say his manufacturing policies are, in fact, working. Can you talk about that? Because, I mean, not everybody knows about record booms in factory construction um, or that we are finally, you know, producing uh, semiconductors uh, once again for the first time in 30 years. And you write a lot about the specifics about the manufacturing policies and how they are, in fact, working. And at least with regard to Bidenomics, manufacturing policies are within Bidenomics working. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I decided to push back on this in part because uh, Catherine Rampell I think is is very bright. I like many of the things that she writes about, like the child care tax credit and why it's important. But she has a real blind spot when it comes to manufacturing and this old kind of neoliberal mindset that it really doesn't matter. So uh, my point is that it does. Uh, I mean, the pandemic obviously showed a great deal of that, and that interventions can be effective. Um, and, and she was trying to make the argument that they can. And, and so I cited the fact that the public policies that Biden has done um, have launched new semiconductor manufacturing uh, construction, uh, have launched new clean energy manufacturing construction. We've actually seen an uptick. We've had 800,000 new manufacturing jobs during the Biden administration. And, and the index that she cites is like, I'm trying to, you know, it's like taking the minute to minute rather than looking at the big picture. And so, yeah, consumers are buying a little less goods than they did before because that's all we did during the pandemic. All we did was buy stuff. Right? I mean, that's so. So now we're chilling out a little bit. And then we also have the Federal Reserve that's kind of like knocking up interest rates a little bit. And that cools down spending a little bit. And so those are the reasons why manufacturing, while that index has been a little soft, but we still see this boom in, in manufacturing construction that's going on in many parts of the country. So it, it's, it's an effective strategy. And, and we, the answer is to do more of it, not, not less of it. I think it's going to be a winning strategy for so many towns uh, in this country. Yeah, like, you know, the factories that, you know, are being built, you know, certainly growing. You talk about semiconductors and, you know, we are now workers are in the race again, right, to manufacture electric vehicles and other high uh, value clean energy products. Um, so it, a lot of people, I think, at least when I read stuff, they don't they don't think that manufacturing is on the road to success again, or we are in a successful place and we're moving forward because they're comparing it to what happened in the 1950s. The manufacturing of 2023 doesn't look the way the 1950s does. We shouldn't try to recreate that. You write that. Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and I think people's view, Leslie, and you might agree with this, are now clouded by politics. It's like you yeah. can't see the economy in front of you because you have your, your political shades on. And I think that's, that's troubling, obviously. Especially yeah, so if a Republican likes what's going on with manufacturing because they work in manufacturing, they don't want to like it because it's called Bidenomics. That's right. And, and I also think that 
you know, it's hard for them to ignore, like, a lot of this investment is having in, happening in, like, red states, right? And so, like, Texas is, is seeing a ton of this stuff. So I don't know how you could ignore that. But um, at the end of the day, I think the perception does matter somewhat. But we've made real progress here. And, uh, and there has been a public policy role for this. And regardless of the stamp that you put on it, um, it's working. It's working and we're seeing this. And so it's interesting, like if you were to ask the question, do you support Biden's infrastructure investments? You know, there'd be a big political split. You just say, do you want to invest more in infrastructure across America? Of course, Republicans are going to say, yes, we do, because it's going to help their communities. So so part of this does get caught up in, in, in politics, which which is unfortunately um, the reality right now. It's kind of choose your news. But I, I get why I get why there's that perception in part because people don't want it to be true. Um, mm. and, and but but look, there's never been a better time to look for a manufacturing job. I mean, you can in almost any town, you can get hired if you have like the basic skills that are necessary for it because there's hundreds of thousands of them that are available right now. Well, I think all you have to do, I know here in Southern California, uh, specifically in Los Angeles, the area of LA that I live, um, storefronts that were closed and places that were empty and people hadn't purchased them or rented them are lots that were there empty. Uh, there are apartment buildings being built. There are stores opening, additional supermarkets, um, whether they're chains or mom and pop. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some other issues um, and uh, on the humanitarian front uh, when it talks uh, when we talk about production, especially overseas in China. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is Scott Paul, president of the AAM. Check them out on their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. On Twitter, follow AAM at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott on Twitter, formerly Twitter, now X, at Scott Paul, A-A-M. I'm Leslie Marshall. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Tesla and electri- uh, the electric vehicles and those supply chains and how concerns are definitely uh, some eyebrows are being raised many about forced labor, specifically in China. Back with Scott and you right after this. We're back. Hi, I'm Leslie Marshall, joined by Scott Paul, president of the AAM, and we're talking about uh, American manufacturing. Go to their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow Scott on Twitter, now known as X at Scott Paul AAM, and follow the AAM there at Keep It Made in USA. Um, one of the reasons we want things to be made in the USA is we have regulations that protect people, protect human beings, um, and. Evan Halper did a piece in the Washington Post, and he spent months mapping uh, the supply chains that are based in China, uh, specifically behind the production of millions of electronic electric vehicles, the, you know, the EV world. And um, he had researchers, he pieced together hundreds of financial disclosures, company communication, social media posting, uh, reports uh, from news outlets there, uh, contracts to reach the findings in the project, um, and... Um, uh, basically, you know, he he exposes something we we knew, but it's uh, deeper and and darker perhaps uh, than than a lot of Americans perhaps are aware. I just wanted to share um, that Tesla 
boasts that its uh, electric vehicles are a marvel, not just of innovation, but also ethics, pledging annual reports that it will, quote, not knowingly accept products or services from suppliers that include forced labor or human trafficking in any form. They tout its teams of uh, uh, monitors that travel to mining operations around the world. They pledged to mount a camera at an African mine to prevent the use of underage or slave uh, labor. But, you know, that's the continent of Africa. But when it comes to China, country of China, uh, they're, they're very, very silent, even though there is evidence um, that in the Xinjiang region, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, forced labor is rampant. And this isn't, it's not even hidden, so to speak. Scott, can you speak to this? Because look, there are many, many products that aren't made in the United States that like, I've been around the world. I've seen children make carpets and it makes your skin crawl, right? It makes your stomach turn, makes you physically ill. Um, So let's, let's talk about this because, um, you know, there's a U.S. ban that firms are undermining. Is Tesla just one of those firms that's undermining this? Does, you know, is Tesla in bed with China so much they don't care about these human rights violations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm glad you raised this up. And I would encourage everybody listening to check out this uh, reporting by Evan Halper, which is like so deep. I mean, it's so refreshing to see it in this day, day and age. Um, so it's, it's well worth well worth a look. And, you know, I think. Tesla's actions in China are horrific, and they're totally based on a profit motive, where Tesla sells a ton of vehicles in China, and so it doesn't want to raise up concerns about forced labor because it thinks it will lose access to that market. Um, and I've, I've seen clips of Elon Musking, Musk like both sizing this uh Uyghur forced labor issue, which is infuriating because there's not really a both sides of it. It's very clear what what's happening. And the other reason, and, and, and you cited this, why it's infuriating. And by the way, it's just not limited to Tesla. It's other major makers as well. I mean, there's like Volkswagen, right. and Ford has faced some allegations of this, is that the, you know, you read the, um, the uh, ESG or the, you know, the DEI uh, statements of the companies and their, you know, and their, and their creeds and all of this. Uh, and then you contrast that, unfortunately, between their lack of attention to their supply chains. Uh, and it can be pretty glaring. Uh, and it's not only glaring. I mean, now, you know, there's a law, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, that basically says, we are going to assume, as a United States government, that anything coming from this part of China, this Xinjiang region, where the Uyghurs are, in fact, being forced to work, uh, is 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 made with slave labor, and we're not going to allow it into the United States uh, unless you can prove that it's not. And there's there's not a lot of folks who will be able to do that. Um, and I mean, so the people understand the Uyghurs are subjected to what's called labor transfers. Um, there's sur- surplus labor employment there. Um, yeah. And they're basically physically taken um, yeah. to do labor. They are in labor camps. Yeah. Um, they, are, they are essentially restricted from freedom of movement. I'm assuming they're not paid wages at all. So they are, in fact, slaves within a labor camp in 2023. No American 
who has a pulse should be purchasing anything where these people are forced to be a part of that supply chain. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And and this is this is again the thing about supply chains, just circling it all the way back to the beginning, is that these companies don't want you to know this, right? Because it is appalling. And they're like, if we just give them the impossibly low prices, then or, or the brand prestige or whatever, they, they won't ask questions. And so that's why it's important. And I'm glad you're doing it, and I'm glad Evan Helper did it, to, to shed some light on this so that we can understand what the consequences of our own purchases and also of our neighbors and also what, what these companies are doing, which is to, you know, there's a lot of, you know, earnest statements about all of this, but there is not a lot of drilling down to the supply chains to root this stuff out. And um, and it and a lot of it is because, you know, there's a lot of consumers in China and they're like, as soon as I speak up about forced labor, the Chinese government's going to shut me out of this market and we're going to lose a ton of money. And so I don't I personally don't have a lot of empathy for that because these companies made their own bet here. And so but at some point in time, you do have to you do have to choose sides Yes. And it's not like the side of like the United States versus China, but it's really the side of are you an ethical company or are you willing to look the other way while this goes on? Uh, so many questions here. One, I know that enforcement is inconsistent. You know, you spoke about the rules specifically with uh, labor from uh, the Uyghur community. Um, how has the auto industry been able to work around uh, the ban by the Biden administration on investments in certain business partnerships with major suppliers to the Chinese military, including China uh, South Industries Group Core and their firm that sells weapons. They're also a large auto manufacturer. So how are the um, automakers able to work around this ban? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a good question. I think part of it is volume. Is that It's just impossible to monitor the volume of imports that are involved here or products that are involved. That's number one. Number two, I think partly it's a shell game that the stuff gets kind of moved around and they're trying to confuse you to know kind of where it, it, it came from. Um, and, and so I think that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, and, and part of this goes back just to our ability to enforce all of this and to focus on specific industries of concern is that there are limited resources that the uh, Customs and Border Protection Agency within the Department of, uh, of uh, Homeland Security has to, to, to monitor this. And part of this is based on an assumption that the industry will be complying in a way. Uh, and, and so, you know, there, there is a real possibility that these types of products are still in the supply chain, and we know this from testing and from other forms of verification, that it is that it is happening. And so we need to step up the enforcement. I think shedding light, like this story does, on what some of the challenges are, um, are going to raise serious questions. Um, and we need to actively, obviously, find more incentives for companies to find alternate sources here. Um, from from all of this, but it is a because that led into my last question, yeah. Scott. There, you know, people listening, people watching that would say, 
we're moving toward a completely EV world, right? I mean, it's yeah. not going to be a choice someday as it is now. That's all they'll be, just like we just have unleaded gas. Remember when we had leaded? I'm feeling old now, right? It was like, let it, unleaded. I don't want that. That's new. Change, right? We didn't want that. Now everybody has it, right? All the vehicles, everything changed. This will change. So what about people listening and watching who say, well, if I'm supposed to buy an electronic vehicle, uh, and very quickly, I have less than a minute, yeah. what do I do? There are electronic vehicles made here. Do I just make sure to purchase one uh, by a company uh, that produces those vehicles here to avoid any possibility of slave labor? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, and, and this is just not limited to EVs, but I think all consumers need to be asking these questions. I think it's important for them to also to support the right public policies they are going to make sure we're getting this out of the supply chains and we're building more of that supply from other parts of the world and from the United States. And so being that educated, responsible consumer is going to be the way to go. It's not going to be easy. I don't feel like it's going to be easy, but it's something we have to do because it is a humanitarian crisis. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for being with us. Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. The website is AmericanManufacturing.org. Check it out before you get off on your weekend. On Twitter, follow them or X, uh, AAM, at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul, AAM. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you. And a special shout out to our executive producer, Mark Moldy. I hope everybody has a wonderful and a safe and a healthy, that flu bug thing going around that I have discussed. Uh, have a healthy, happy, safe weekend.